I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, hello, listeners. It's lovely to have you again. Welcome to Talking With Cancer, season three, and this is episode five. I'm really enjoying chatting to my guests, actually. I think I've got such a brilliant mix of people that I'm talking to. And that continues, by the way, throughout the season. So stay tuned. I've still got some really great people that I chat to. Today, I chat to Dr. Alex Lyon of the Royal Brompton Hospital. He is my cardiologist. And if you've been listening to the pod, you will know that, yeah, it was quite unusual for me to even think about my heart and my heart health. But when I was given the treatment on Trectinib, it was, you know, straight away, I was told that I would have to be seeing a cardiologist and that I would have to be having my heart monitored because ontrectinib is the type of cancer treatment that can affect the heart. So it was funny, like, I think a lot changed for me, obviously a lot changed for me with the diagnosis, but particularly with how I felt about my own health. I'm going to come on to that and talk more about that in the second half once I've played the interview. But it was very strange suddenly having other parts of my body investigated and no longer feeling confident that everything would be okay. I think that once you have a cancer diagnosis, lots of different triggers will then happen. And it's really hard to know your own body and to trust that it's working to its full potential. A lot kind of came up around that time of going for heart checks and being treated by a cardiologist and being given medication to help my heart. It's quite common with entrectinib, like I say, that the heart gets impacted. And for me, what they realized quite early on was that it was actually weakening my heart. And so they did two things. They reduced the dose of entrectinib. They took it from 600 milligrams to 400 milligrams a day. But then my cardiologist, Dr. Alex Lyon, also introduced a heart strengthener. And that also took a bit of time to get that balance right because obviously the heart drug that he gave me was there to strengthen the heart, but the drug is also used to treat high blood pressure. And I already have low blood pressure, so it was quite possibly like reducing my blood pressure even more. So we had to play around with that dose as well. And I also discovered that taking it in the evening was a much better time of day. And I think that's something to really consider with your medication, like what time of day is the right time to take it. And also just to always be on top of your medication and making sure that whoever the different doctors are that you have to see are aware of all the different medications you're on and how they might interact with each other. And that's something that I learned along the way. So, yeah, I think that, you know, I felt so reassured having Dr. Alex Lyon in my life. And I think what you all agree is that he's really 
clear about how he explains things and he does it in such a way that you just feel like, okay, I, I'm following this, I get it. And I hope you'll you'll feel that in the interview. He talks about some quite complex stuff. But what I realised sort of at the end really is that like this whole merging of cardiology, oncology is kind of like what he has done. He has really created that kind of field in a way. And I think something that I've found when I've been chatting to certain groups, certain Facebook groups, you know, we often will kind of share experiences on particular treatments like on Trectinib, is that often, like, I hear them talk about dizziness, and I know that that can be a side effect of on Trectinib, but I account dizziness with issues of the heart, basically, the heart not getting to your head quick enough for really simple terms. And so I often will go back to those individuals and say, look, have you got a cardiologist? Are you having things checked? Because, you know, I know that that's really important part of this treatment plan. So yeah, Dr. Alex Lyon is just incredibly thorough, very, very thorough, and he can really, you just get the sense with him that he's just got an outlook on the bigger picture and he understands how everything kind of works together. And I think it's really lovely that he deals with everything to do with the heart. Yeah, there's just something with that that kind of feels caring because we're talking about the heart. We're talking about an organ that is responsible for love so I'm going to play this interview. I really hope you like it. And you might have to listen twice to catch everything because there's a lot in there. But hopefully you'll learn something and hopefully it'll be interesting. And I'll chat to you after. I'm really excited this week with my lovely special guest. I see him personally and he's done amazing work with me. Dr. Alex Lyon, who is the leading consultant cardiologist at the Royal Brompton Hospital. To introduce him as that, I don't think gives him the credit that he deserves because he is an expert and a specialist in loads of things, which I'll probably get a bit wrong. So I would love you to add whatever additional additional titles you can to that introduction thank you so much for being here with me today thanks for inviting me to join your podcast today so i started life as a consultant in a condition called heart failure which is weakening of the heart's muscle so that no longer pumps blood effectively around the body and there are lots of different causes of heart failure and during my training, one of the new emerging causes was modern cancer therapies. And there was a revolution in the first decade of this century with a drug called trastuzumab, otherwise known as Herceptin, for the breast cancers which express this HER2 molecule. And that used to be the worst breast cancer to have. And with this new drug, Herceptin, it converted it to being probably the best one to have because the cure rates now with Herceptin are so good. And for many people, even if the cancer spread around the body, the Herceptin can control it wherever it is. And some women are very fortunate, can live for years. I've got some women with on Herceptin for over 15 years. Wow. But we then saw about 15% of the people on that medicine got heart failure. 
And that was the first of these modern cancer therapies. And if you follow cancer, you'll explosion of new treatments. And what we're finding in the cardiology clinic is somewhere between a third and a half of all these new modern cancer therapies cause some form of heart disease or blood vessel vascular problem. So when you say the new modern cancer treatment, are you talking about the, like targeted therapy like I'm on? I'm on the entrectinib. Yes. So it's in that, so it's treating the mutating gene yeah. that's caused the cancer, which in my case is the same. Exactly, yeah. And there are lots of different modern targeted therapies. I should add, there's also some older chemotherapies that also cause heart problems. So we've known for decades that a certain group of chemotherapies, which are called anthracyclines, and they're commonly used in breast cancer and in lymphomas and sarcomas, can cause heart failure. So that has been known about for many years. But it's really the last two decades that have just seen with this success of modern cancer therapies, this explosion, but unfortunately, one of the side effects of them is the heart. And of course, that can be very serious for some people. And that's then led to the birth of this new subspecialty within modern cardiology called cardio-oncology. And really, our mission here is to understand who's at risk. So doing a baseline assessment for who are going to be and these drugs before they start to check everything's okay and if it's not if they've already got a pre-existing heart problem to understand why and treat that first then to monitor them and people who are very high risk we need closer monitoring people who risk we do some monitoring but it's less frequent and intense and then if we pick up a problem early we can hopefully nip it in the bud with heart treatment in order that we keep people on their effective cancer therapies safely. So would you argue that anyone going through treatment for cancer should be seeing a cardiologist and getting their heart checked in that sense before, during and after? Is that a luxury? If I take your question, Katie, in a yes, no answer, the answer is no. Cardiology cannot possibly see every patient who's coming through the cancer services, wherever you live in the world. But we don't need to. So what we do is first of all say, does a cancer treatment have the potential to cause a heart problem? And we know the ones that do. It's a long list. Every few months, a new drug gets licensed, goes on the bottom of the list, and it's getting longer and longer. But if I look at that list, it probably covers about a third of cancer patients. So two-thirds are not on anything that's going to cause them a heart problem, so that's not an issue. And then if we take the third who do, what we want to implement is that the journey starts with the oncologist and the hematologist, if it's a blood cancer, and that there they have a risk assessment. And we've provided in our guidelines some structure, like a performer, to do a risk assessment. And then if the risk is low they start treatment and just have some monitoring in the oncology department or hematology department as they're going through their treatments and only a new problem arises do they come and see a cardiologist mm -hmm. let me ask you this you're very good at explaining things in really simple terms so this might be difficult to explain but why do these treatments impact the heart and if we understand that this is what's happening and it's been happening for 
a significant amount of time. Why can't that be changed in creating those treatments? So that's a great question. And I'm going to give a most common example. This is not an explanation for every type of cancer treatment and the heart or blood vessels. So each one has got its own unique things, but I'm going to give a general principle, okay, which is one of the fundamental problems with cancer is that the cells are growing and dividing in an abnormal way. And that's because the growth signaling pathways in those cells might have a mutation that just turns them on. So they're sort of automated on rather than in normal life, but in health, they may go on temporarily and then off and then back on and off, whereas now they're fixed on and that's then drives the process. So the cancer scientists have then identified which of these growth pathways are on, which have got the mutations and then what happens to the protein and then block the protein with a treatment. And that treatment can be an antibody like trastuzumab or Herceptin if it's on the surface of the cancer cell, or it can be a small molecule that's in a tablet if it's within the cell. And those have been very effective at treating cancer. The challenge is that different tissues in the body also need those growth pathways for either normal function or in the context of that tissue being diseased, the growth pathway helps protect that organ or tissue so it can continue to work normally. And the heart is full of these pathways. And so we would paradoxically see these pathways as good pathways from the perspective of heart disease. So if someone has had a heart attack, if they've damaged their heart, or if they've got poorly controlled blood pressure or diabetes leading to heart muscle disease, in the heart, these pathways and their proteins are all activated to protect the heart and keep it strong. And then a molecule comes along that blocks that. Right. Why, as I've sort of alluded to, if you've already got a pre-existing heart problem, you're much more likely to be sensitive to the drugs compared to somebody with a completely healthy, strong heart. Although there are some examples where these drugs even have an effect on a healthy heart. But usually it's in people where actually these molecular pathways are being activated to help support their heart because it's already got some disease. And that includes it could be age. So you know, if a 75-year-old needs treatment with cancer drug X, they're more likely to get heart problems than the 5-year-old, more likely than the 20-year-old. Yeah. Whereas then in children, and there are some children who get cancer, the, the growing heart of a child also uses these pathways, so they may become more sensitive. So we actually we know that risk is highest in young age and then late age versus young adults where the heart's fully developed and they haven't been old enough to get many diseases yet. Right. I came to see you thinking, I'm all good. I've never had a heart problem. And, you know, and then you had a look and you were like, mm, actually, Katie, what I'm seeing is, I believe it was perimyocarditis you diagnosed me with, although I feel like it had a bit of something. Am I getting it? Is that right? Yes, so I'm sure you're happy for us to share general topic yes. content of your issues. I talk about everything on here, so don't worry. <laughs> yes, so before you started your specialist targeted cancer treatment, you had a heart scan and it was normal. I would have expected that young, otherwise healthy lady 
no other major health problems before your diagnosis of cancer. You know, it would be no surprise if your heart function on the initial scan was normal. Then two months or so after starting your treatment, we do a routine follow-up because we know that your treatment has the potential to cause a weakness of the heart. And if that's left, then heart failure. And somewhat to our surprise, your heart was starting to show weakness. And you, I recall, also had noticed a bit more breathless. And that was complex because initially the cancer was in the lungs and therefore causing breathlessness because of the cancer. You then felt it was getting better because the treatment was getting the cancer, shrinking it, and your breathing was better. And then you started to have a second dip that sort of didn't make sense until we found out that the heart, your heart was not 100%. And as a doctor in this space, I'm thinking, crikey, that's unusual. Katie's heart had some dysfunction early on. It's very sensitive to this medicine, but you don't have any other heart problems and you're young. So yes, we do see this, but slightly unusual. And so that led me to think, well, what else could be going on? And we should do a specialist heart scan called a cardiac MRI. And the reason to do the MRI is to look at how the health of the muscle looks. Is there any signs of damage, inflammation? And that can be inflammation of the heart muscle, which we call myocarditis, or of the membrane, pericarditis. And if you get the combination of the two, it's called perimyocarditis. Yeah. Or is there heart attack damage? Let's just check the blood flow into the heart muscle, make sure that the coronaries haven't developed a narrowing, but you're such a young age, I wouldn't have expected that. Whereas in someone in later life, the likelihood of coronary arteries furring up, causing a problem is also common. Now, we then saw on your MRI that you had had this inflammation problem called perimyocarditis, not in the whole heart, but just in one region. And knowing how your cancer drug works, entrectinib, I wouldn't expect it to cause that. Even though you'd admitted to me, you said, look, Katie, I've, I've probably seen a handful of people on this drug because it's such a new mm. drug and it's new only drug, just been yeah. approved. You've always been very honest with me in that sense. So despite that, you didn't expect it to be. Yeah, that. I didn't think that. So there's sort of two reasons for that. There's no rules in life in medicine that are 100% or 0%. It's often not so simply black and white. But in general, the type of drug entrectinib falls into, if they're going to cause a heart problem, it's every cell in the heart is affected and it's a very global effect. And if it's mm. inflammation, you'd expect the inflammation to sort of be in all parts. Interesting, yeah. The, the medicine Where, why is in would your it body. Go to one place, yeah. Everywhere. So how can it cause such a regional effect on a global uh, medicine and we've seen this in examples in but it's also just the experience over the last 10 15 years of seeing people on lots of new cancer drugs of understanding the type of drug we typically expect to see and then when a new one comes up use those same principles you know until we see 10,000 people on these drugs we'll get a real feel of what the true signal is yeah. but what we had seen is that this pattern that you had in your heart We'd seen a lot of from COVID or from the COVID vaccines in the last two and a half years. So then you and I went back to discuss, had you had COVID? When was it? And it started to fit because you'd had it in, if I recall, January. Yeah. 
And mildly, by the way, to listeners, it wasn't like I had a heavy symptoms, you know, it probably lasted three or four days. It was literally a bit of a sniff. So I just think that's important to make that point, because even if, you know, you don't have a strong bout of it, it could still affect your heart in some way. Yeah, it can do. And everybody's been vaccinated when we've seen it with the vaccine or that typically occurs within four weeks of the vaccine. So then we can come back to what I was saying earlier about why these things happen. So if COVID has caused some inflammation in your heart, your heart will be activating all its growth and survival pathways to help keep it strong. So it's then got just slightly higher levels of these pathways running, and then a molecule comes along that's blocking them because we want it to block it in the cancer. Mm. And then your heart's more sensitive than maybe it would have been if you had never had the COVID inflammation of the heart. Now, that's obviously what we can hypothesize. We'll never know, but that's how we yeah. think of it in terms of your situation. And in a previous research study that we did at the Royal Brompton Hospital in collaboration with Harvard in Boston and Barcelona, we studied how many people who get cancer chemotherapy-induced heart problems have also a heart muscle gene disorder. And in the general population, the rate of these gene mutations is about 2 to 2.5%. And in our group, it was 12.5%. At the moment, in 2022, that doesn't lead to a specific treatment, although there are specialist drugs being developed. But first of all, it gives us an answer because quite a lot of the time, and you can tell me, Katie, there's the why me? Why has this happened to me? <laughs> and the 0.0% is what I fall into in my case, yeah. So there's the why me? And then there's also another question which you and I one day will come to, which is if the cancer therapies worked, at some point, can you come off it? That's the conversation with you and your oncologist. But we have lots of people where they've had a heart problem during their cancer treatment. We've started heart medication, got their heart better, supported it, and they continued the treatment. And then when they come off the treatment, the question always comes back to me, do I need to stay on my heart? <laughs> and so the way I want you to think of this and your listeners to this is, well, is the problem a temporary problem that's reversible. So just removing away the cause, now everything's back to normal, because that person would not potentially need to be on lifelong heart medication. Or has it caused some damage or permanent effect, which means that if we remove the heart mm -hmm. medicine, the heart will get weaker again, even though the original cause, the cancer treatment has stopped. Right. There's so much strategy in what you do. I've got two more questions. If you could just explain really briefly, when I had my operation, the surgeon accidentally took out a parathyroid gland. This is very common in head and neck surgery. I've been on calcium treatment for three months. But when I've been sort of times when I was in the, in the hospital and I was on a drip and then I was sent to A&E and every time that I was being given calcium through an infusion, I had to have my heart monitored. 
And the big worry around the calcium levels dropping was how it would impact on the heart. And this was all new to me because all I grew up knowing was drink milk. It's good, gives you calcium. It's good for your bones. But suddenly it's really important for the heart. Can you explain why? Yes. So our heart is a pump and its anatomy is made up of 100 billion little muscle cells that contract and relax for every heartbeat it's amazing wow. they're actually organized in three different layers in the main pumping chamber and they have this wonderful three-dimensional electrical cable system that coordinates the contraction and relaxation for every heartbeat i've mentioned electrical deliberately obviously this is natural electrical fibers not metal but our heartbeats are governed by our natural pacemaker that sits in one of the collecting chambers of the heart that stimulates an electrical pulse that goes across the surface of the heart muscle and triggers the contraction and relaxation. So every heartbeat, you've got this electrical wave followed by the muscle contracting and relaxing. The biological pathway that underpins this, we call excitation contraction coupling the excitation being the electrical way now if we start with the contraction that is all inside the cell coordinated by calcium so inside every one of these 100 billion heart muscle cells is a reservoir within a membrane that's full of calcium and each heartbeat that reservoir empties the calcium into the main cell compartment triggering proteins to contract which then causes the cell to contract and if all the cells are connected causes the muscle to contract and then to relax all that calcium within the cell gets moved back into the reservoir stored up for the next heartbeat the process that then governs that is electrical and this is even equally complex and the way I would like you to think of it is if you've got a heart muscle cell, you have a whole range of iron channels and they're like the musicians in an orchestra. So the electrical wave comes along and the channels open and close in different orders in a coordinated way. And that then triggers the calcium to come out of the reservoir. And that's happening in every heartbeat in our hearts as you sit there listening to us. So calcium is important both for the electrical wave and for the internal contraction. Now, amazingly, our blood levels of calcium don't influence the heart function in a very, for a very wide normal range. Right. So nothing about drinking milk and calcium is going to influence your heart. But there are some people where if the calcium level in the blood goes extremely high. Give me examples, because mine was pre-surgery around 2.5 and then post-surgery it dropped to below 2 and it was around that kind of 1.8, 1.9. But when I went to A&E, it was 1.6. Yeah. So the normal range of calcium is around 2.2 to 2.6. Above 3.0 or below 2.0 is when the heart's electrical systems can start to get influenced, and that can then lead to something that could be dangerous called arrhythmia, and that's why you have your heart monitored. And then if it gets very low, 
for the low side, then the strength of the heart can start to get weaker. And certainly at your levels, 1.6, 1.7, there would have been a cause of concern. Hence, you get put into hospital and you get monitored closely whilst getting the treatment and replacement. I mean, that's really extremes because people who have a slightly low calcium, 2.1, 2.05 it's not going to really be troubled by that yeah it's only when it gets extremely low right is that why calcium is called an electrolyte because of yeah or oh, another phrase is a blood salt but because calcium magnesium sodium and potassium you may remember from your chemistry lessons at school are one plus or two plus so yeah. they are ions with an electrical charge yeah exactly right this is all so interesting i could keep going keep going it's fascinating my last question for you just to ask because obviously this podcast is about cancer and i speak to all different people from all walks of life they're impacted with cancer in some way why did you choose cardio oncology why did you choose to specialize in cancer um i think several reasons Katie when I was doing my research as a PhD student in 2004 to 2007 I was studying heart failure gene therapy and in fact the gene that we were looking to try and help the heart targets that calcium in the reservoir so that was a fundamental part of my research and what I could see happening was this emergence of new heart failure in cancer patients that didn't exist to a, the scale of what it does now. So we had no lectures about this at medical school. Mm. One could just see that there was a new problem developing that needed a solution and that traditional cardiology training and traditional heart failure training didn't really address this. I started to sort of get some interest, first of all, in research. So we did some research in the laboratory with one of the chemotherapies that cause heart failure to try and understand why it's doing this. Another bit of serendipity in my life, which is I've been training at the Royal Brompton Hospital. I did my PhD with at Imperial College at the National Heart Lung Center at the Royal Brompton Hospital campus. And we're the nation's heart and lung hospital. But next door, is the nation's cancer hospital, the Royal Marsden. Yay. And they, of course, are a world-leading cancer hospital, but they don't have any cardiologists. Mm. So it became obvious that if we set up a cardio-oncology service for the Royal Marsden, they produce testing all these new treatments, it would help be a synergy. And that led to when I was appointed a consultant in January 2012, actually a few months earlier, opened our cardio-oncology service in 2011. And in those early weeks, months, you know, we'd get maybe four or five patients referred a month. And there's a whole range of things as well, because as well as cancer treatments causing problems, some people just arrive with serious heart problems at the time they're diagnosed with cancer that weren't known about that need to be dealt with so they could be fit enough to have their surgery or the chemotherapies and targeted therapies and so we brought that all under one umbrella because it really is specialist and i would say so we now have something called the international cardio-oncology society and they've gone around identifying centers of excellence and as all these societies do then offering awards of different scales and we 
been given a gold award for our cardio-oncology center of excellence of which there's i think five in europe who got gold and another sort of 10 or 15 in North America. So hopefully we can also then train the next generation of doctors. That's what we're doing with our fellowships to be able to, you know, increase the knowledge and understanding of this. Yeah, well, it's very well deserved. Congratulations on that award. And I'm so grateful for your time. You've been so brilliant at describing things in, I wouldn't say simple terms, because it's definitely not a simple, simple area to talk about, but it's really great. I always find that when I come to see you, it's very clear. You're very smart confident direct we like to get it done <laughs> this is what we're going to do katie and we're going to get it sorted so i always feel very at ease in your care so thank you for your care and thank you so much for talking to me today i really appreciate it it's been great to speak to you well thank you and as you and i know your heart's back to normal my ticker as you call it ticker. my ticker's back to normal yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that great? I hope that you enjoyed listening to my interview with Dr. Alex Lyon. Thanks again for giving me your time. Well, I kind of was thinking about what to talk about today. And I think something that definitely comes up on here quite a lot that I've discussed over the seasons is self-advocacy. And I think it's something that I, I thought might be useful to just give a few tips on how that might actually look in practice. And the reason I wanted to do that today is because I've come back from an appointment at the hospital, which was a bit stressful, actually. And I kind of thought, hmm, how could that have played out differently? So I'll tell you the scenario. I see a certain doctor for a certain issue, and I'm not going to give names because I'm not really here to point the finger specifically at that doctor. Where possible, I try to avoid having face-to-face -face appointments. That's another thing under the self-advocacy umbrella, I think, because it's a lot of traveling and very often you can get exactly the same information either on a video call or a telephone call. It is nice to have in-person appointments, but I think that, yeah, I've learned that it's not always necessary. So for me, traveling to Chelsea, it's quite a lot of effort. It's quite a long way. And I'd rather avoid that experience, basically, that long journey. What I find with this particular doctor is that whether it is a phone call or whether it's a face-to-face -face appointment, this doctor is always late. And I have lived with doctors growing up. I've seen doctors and I have always understood that they are people and that they can make mistakes, they can run late, they can get a lot of hassle from lots of patients. It's not always necessary. I've seen it from that side. So I do understand the starting point. And I also understand that doctors can be really overworked and it's a really stressful job and they may not always have the support and the admin support and the support from their peers that they need. So I totally get that. But I think that when you're running late as a medical practitioner, I think five, 10 minutes, that's fine. You could put that down to other patients being late and appointments running over. But 
you know, in my experience with this particular doctor, whether it's a phone conversation or a face-to-face, it's at least 20 to 30 minutes. Sometimes I miss those phone calls because, you know, I'll have something else that I have to do. And so I will have scheduled that in kind of half an hour after the call. So that's the first thing I'd say, like always check, do you really need to go in and have that appointment face to face? The other thing is like, I'm not someone that wants to point the finger and blame people when things don't particularly go right. I want to understand how it didn't go right, because if I can understand that, then I've got a better starting point to make sure things go right so I made a complaint about the fact that like I'd arrived and I was waiting and 20 minutes later I still wasn't seen and I asked the nurse like I just want to understand like how long am I going to have to wait and you know the nurse was very apologetic and I said I know it's not your fault but this often happens and you know it's like it's really frustrating like how does this happen every time So I then said, look, I'm going to go for a walk and I'm going to come back. You're telling me it's probably going to take another 30 or 40 minutes. So I'm going to come back in 30 to 40 minutes. I went for a walk and I phoned the doctor in question secretary and I explained, look, you know, the doctor's running late. How does this always seem to happen? Like, what's the problem? You know, why are things not communicated? I said, the other slightly worrying thing is that I saw my name on a list and I saw my time. And then just below me at exactly the same time, I saw another patient and next to their name said telephone consultation. So how is the doctor supposed to see me in person and do a phone consultation with someone else? I don't know. So the secretary was, you know, perfectly pleasant and said, you know, I'll make a note of it and I'll make sure that the doctor's aware. And when I went into that appointment and I said to the doctor, look, it's been an hour now since I was due here and it's just really upsetting, you know, that this is what happens. Like, and it's every time I see you or I have a phone call with you, it's always late. And the doctor did not apologise. The doctor physically got very defensive and kind of tried to point the finger elsewhere. And he actually said to me, you know what, we called your name at 10 past 12 and you weren't here. And I said, oh, I went for a walk and I told the nurse I was going to do that because the nurse told me that it was going to be a while. When I went on that walk, as well as calling the secretary, I might actually add that I started to wonder why it was so upsetting for me. I was taking on board stuff that Deborah said in episode two and I was really trying to listen and listen and listen. And I felt like very disrespected and I'm someone who really believes that like you earn respect right it's not just something that like you should expect from people but I have a mutual respect with this doctor like I totally respect the doctor his line of work and everything else and I expect that level of respect back and so I calmed myself down. I enjoyed the walk. I discovered this different side to the hospital. And I was like, that's actually really cool. Like, I didn't even know that this whole street full of cafes and stuff was here. And like I say, I went in and that's what I was told by the doctor. There was no apology. And I kind of thought, you know, I'm just really quite wound up here. Because even if the doctor doesn't want to take the blame for the fact that every time the appointment is late... Like, in order to show those kind of like, let's, for want of a better word, say leadership skills, an apology is given by the person that feels, you know, 
they can take responsibility for other people's actions. So I didn't get that. And it doesn't affect my impression of the doctor in terms of the work that he does medically, but the overall, I guess, kind of service is, you know, the ability to deal with patients and to deal with upset patients. And don't forget, like, there's a whole backstory for me of what's going on here. You know, I'm coming to a hospital I don't really want to travel to. I'm sure there are loads of other emotional things I have that go on with that hospital, for sure. I also, like, have this issue, which is a result of the cancer, and it's a result of the operation, and that's also really upsetting. And when I left, I mean, the other thing that happened was, like, the bloods that were taken yesterday in preparation for today's appointment weren't the correct bloods. So after all of this, he didn't actually have the information that he needed in order to perhaps, like, change, increase or decrease my medication. It was all a total waste of time. And not only that, like it definitely could have been done over the phone. So I'm thinking again, in the name of self-advocacy, what could I have done differently? And I think one thing I definitely would do next time and I could have done today is phone ahead. If I know this doctor always runs late, I could phone ahead and say, I just want to check, is the clinic running to time or not? Like, am I going to expect a waiting time or not? That's definitely one thing that I could have done. And I suppose it's possible that like feedback might be really welcomed and I could put an email together to kind of spell out my experience. I think what's important for people listening is A, if you're a patient, to think ahead about these things and to think about like, how does all this communication happen between you and the doctor? Like, who's in between all of that communication? Are you going to the right person in order to kind of be filtered through in the correct way? Can you find out what that route might be? Can you find a way of communicating what your needs are in a perfectly pleasant, polite manner, but basically putting your needs first and really thinking about what the impact might be of a day like today for someone else. I mean, for me, having that delay hour, it didn't really make a huge difference to my day. But to someone else, that could have a huge impact on childcare, on returning to work after a lunch break or something. And so it's just really not okay to experience that often. This is the thing, I don't know whether what I feel about disturbing doctors is a common trait. It's something I only realise now, like at this stage in my life where I need doctors a lot more and I depend on them and I see them a lot, that like I have this attitude which is like, I don't want to bother them, I don't want to bother them. Like they have a lot to do, they're really, really busy and like just make the appointment quick and easy for them. They've got to get on with their day. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair on me. You know, sometimes I keep a note of the questions I have to ask when I'm in there. I think that's a really useful thing to do because it's easy to get into an appointment and just forget all the things that you were going to say and ask. Some people recommend recording an appointment on your voice notes, which I think is a really good idea. I've never done it and I always wish I'd done it and I, I should be doing it. 
if like me, you have a, um, a clinical nurse specialist, a CNS, then that's a really great point of contact. I find the team that I have at the Royal Marsden amazing and they are super helpful and they are really clear in their communication and they know a lot about what's going on with me. I think that's the other thing, like feeling like you're known by your team. They know who you are and they know what your needs are. And I think that's also something that's really important. And you can ask that question, like, I just want to check, do you know what my situation is? Like, so yeah, I think I've learned so much about this whole period of time is what I think about doctors and how I feel around doctors and how I talk to doctors and how I position myself with doctors, you probably think of me by now as someone who is, you know, pretty good at asking what I need, but there's still like a lot of cracks there. And I think, you know, another thing that's happened this week is I get side effects from ontrectinib, but I also get certain symptoms that happen out the blue and I used to be the kind of person obviously who just thought a cough would go away a lump on the neck is nothing and look where that got me and I think that again have to have learned from this experience is anything that's happening in my body that doesn't feel right anything at all However short-lived that is, I have to take that issue to my team and I have to share it with them. You know, ask them, what should I do about this? Should I come to you about this? Should I be seeing a specialist about this? Because I don't know what that is. Like, I don't know. And I think also when you're on a treatment like contractinib, which is so new, it's also can be confusing what could be potential side effect or what could be, again, a new symptom or you know, something that's going on in your body and it might be absolutely nothing, but I think it's really important to speak out as soon as you notice something different. Because I questioned myself this week, you know, I thought, mm, do I need to bother them with that? Is it really something serious? No, it's probably nothing I need to worry about. But of course, as soon as I called the nurse and explained to her, she had a solution, she had a plan. And she thought really quickly on her toes. And I felt I almost wanted to pat myself on the back that I'd taken that to her. I've said it before on here, like when you're seeing your oncologist all the time, you kind of forget you still need to look after your health. You still need to go to the dentist. You still need to have your smear test. You know, you still need to, whatever it is, go and have a checkup for a new symptom. And yeah, I think that's definitely something that I've learned in this experience and it's definitely something that I would really like to pass on and like I said I hope if you're listening to this as a patient or a friend of a patient or a medical expert I really hope it gives you some insight into what's gone on for me this week yeah power to the people who self-advocate and I really hope that you feel confident enough to do that and are able to do that. I just wanted to add a little footnote here to explain that the doctor in question that I have a big old rant about in this episode was not Dr. Alex Lyon. Of course it wasn't him. Just wanted to make that really clear. So I've also mentioned on here that if you have a story you'd like to share, 
I'd be really happy to play a voice note from you at the end of my episode. And this week, I've got a voice note from a lovely young woman called Morgan Kennedy. She approached me on Instagram to say she really liked the podcast and would I consider having her on as a guest? And I wrote back and said, I'm really sorry, I'm actually full with guests, but I'd love to play your story out in a voice note on an episode. And she very kindly went away and made that for me. So I'm going to play that now. Morgan Kennedy, take it away. Hey, my name is Morgan, and I have the diffuse sclerosing variant of papillary thyroid cancer, as well as being four years in recovery for alcohol, pill, and cocaine use. I was diagnosed in 2018 at the age of 21, at four months sober, and I'm 25 now. I had two surgeries the year of 2019 with radioactive iodine in between. I was not RAI resistant, however, my body was kind of just cohabitating with it in a sense that it wasn't really doing much, and it definitely wasn't killing the cancer that are already metastasized to the lymph nodes surrounding my thyroid. So when they found it, the main lymph nodes in my thyroid were totally gone. They were drowning in cancer. But now here I stand, I'm recovering from my last thyroid cancer surgery, my third, last April, six months out. And unfortunately, there is a reoccurrence that I could physically feel. But as thyroid cancer goes, we're just going to monitor and see what happens and watch the behavior. My life has unraveled in ways that I could have never predicted. I work for a recovery organization called Alumni in Recovery, and I volunteer my time making graphics for a thyroid cancer organization called Thigh to Bono. Through the recovery organization, I share my story of addiction and then my story of recovery and how cancer popped up and how you really can't plan for things like that. On the hard days, I try to remind myself that I am living with two diseases, cancer and addiction. I need to treat them as such. For my addiction, stay connected, talk to people in recovery, go to meetings, and continue to share my story and give others hope. For my cancer, I also need to stay connected. Whether I talk to people in support groups or just close people in my life, I go to scans, I go to appointments, and I share this part of my story as it has helped me value my sobriety and my life even more. Without my physical health, I've learned how important my mental health is and vice versa. Without one, you need the other, and if you don't have the other to fall back on, life gets really, really scary. I love this podcast because I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not the only one who struggles day to day and my problems regarding cancer are totally valid, even if sometimes people don't understand them. I love that this space exists. It's a safe space for me to go to when I need to just listen to anything and everything that isn't my anxious thoughts. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my story. And I can't wait to listen to more of the podcast. That was Morgan. And thanks again, Morgan, for doing that and sharing your story. I think that will be an inspiration to a lot of people who are having to deal with addiction and cancer. I think that you're doing really great things in the world. I know you're speaking about this subject a lot and I think it's brilliant. So well done and I wish you all the best. Thank you listeners for listening this week. It's been a good one. I hope you'll agree. Matters of the heart and a good old rant from me at the end. That felt great to get that off my chest actually but I do hope it's helpful for you guys. Do get in touch 
email me at hello at talkingwithcancer.com. Have I mentioned my fundraising page? If you've enjoyed listening and you would be happy to donate something, just think of it as a Netflix or a Spotify subscription. You can go to my website, talkingwithcancer.com and click through to the fundraising page. And I'm donating, I'm splitting the charities between the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity and Maggie's. Thanks again. And I really look forward to seeing you guys next week. Take care.